Hey, Ethan, guess what? What? This is our fourth year of podcasting. <laughs> Holy poop. It's, our podcast is a, a senior in college. <laughs> wow. I, we're, we're still here and I can't believe it. I guess I can. Because what are we going to do, really? <laughs> what else? Yeah, yeah. My friends ask me what I'm doing right now, and I'm like, a lot of podcasting, which is, is true. It's, but it's been good stuff. We have had, we've had great guests. We've had great conversations. We have. We have come quite a ways. We have. Our, our viewership is, is growing, and our listenership, I guess, is growing in certain interesting ways. More yeah. people from the church people uh, outside the church, people, you know, just, just getting into what we're doing, which I appreciate. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, we're here to like, not toot our own horns, but to say thank you to all of our guests. Thank you to all of you who are listeners, uh, especially the day one listeners who have, who've stuck with us through thick and thin. This has been, it's been fun. It's been a ride. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we're starting off season four uh, with a conversation with the deacon, something we've never done before on <laughs> the podcast. Isn't that wild? Yeah. yeah. The, the, the conversation has really uh, was really great. It really changed some of the ways I thought about things. I was like, maybe I should be a deacon, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, friends, this is great. Thanks again for listening. This has been wonderful. We're still at it. We're still making it so. We're learning new things learning new things, be in the pod. And we hope you'll stick with us for another year. But for now, enjoy the beginning of season four of What the Hell is a Pastor. Thanks, everybody. One, two, five, nine. Robin, preacher, servant, leader, rector, reverend, deacon, elder, what the hell? Welcome to What the Hell is a Pastor, a podcast about life in set-apart ministry. Each week, we draw on our experiences and challenges as current and former pastors to figure out what the hell it is that pastors do and how to do it as best we can. Listeners, our guest this week on the podcast is Janet Craswell. She is joining us from, are you in Washington, D.C. right now? Or are you at, well, at the moment, I'm in Rockville, Maryland, but that might as well be Washington, D.C. suburb. At this point, yeah. Joining us from the great metropolis of Rockville, Maryland. Uh, Janet, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. It's good to be here. Yeah. Will you introduce yourself to our listeners and as much information as you want to share? Okay, um, so my name is Janet Craswell. I am a United Methodist Deacon, um, serving as Minister of Discipleship at National United Methodist Church in Washington, D.C. Um, we have three different campuses, one of which is right across the street from American University, another one is on Connecticut Avenue in D.C., and one's in Glover Park. Minister of Discipleship means that I'm responsible for the Christian education program of the church and trying to make sure that the, that the ministry and mission of the church is supported by, um, by learning. So be deep biblical learning, but also making sure that, for instance, when we encounter social justice issues, that we, we know what's going on behind the issues that we're advocating around, um, what are the what are the causes of the food insecurity that we're trying to address with our feeding programs? And um, we are, we're working, for instance, with Project Transformation this summer, helping children maintain their reading levels. Well, there's reasons that reading levels drop off during the summer. There's reasons why schools in the 
in the eastern wards of the District of Columbia do not have as good of test scores as the ones in the upper Northwest. And so anytime we are doing anything in the church, the role of Christian education is to make sure that people are running on something other than their own good intentions, you know, that we have some kind of background to what it is we're doing. Um, I work with all ages, um, from the littlest ones through adults. Um, right. We, in the past, we've had a youth pastor who's been able to focus, um, on specifically on middle school and high school youth right now with the pandemic, we haven't had that person. So I've been, we've all been kind of pitching in to try to cover youth, but mostly, um, I work with the little kids and with adults. That's the main things. Nice. That was a that was a great succinct summary of your ministry, and I'm very grateful for it. We had Patrick on the podcast. Okay, so you you've heard about youth ministry then at, at National? Yeah, we had him on just after he moved, I think. Mm-hmm. So we talked a lot more about his current current church, but yeah, yeah. So it's a we're gathering everybody together, listeners. I attended National for a year before I started my internship in seminary, and then Ian, friend of the podcast. Uh, attended national and was a soloist and directed choirs and all this kind of stuff. So national is close to our hearts. So you explained a lot of your role, which I did not realize how much of your role was educating adults in the congregation mm-hmm. around factors in social justice. And I love that it's um, so that people are not going off of their best intentions because we know that um, man, especially white people's best intentions do not go <laughs> as far as we want them to. Can you situate national for us, kind of, we know it must be, well, people who know DC must know that it must have quite some money to be quite or across the street from American, but can you explain what the congregation of national is like and um, the different campuses and how you came to be national instead of Metropolitan Memorial, which is was which is what it was when I got there? Sure. Well, we have to travel back in time before the Civil War. Oh, wow. The Methodist Episcopal Church, which had not yet divided North and South, um, decided that it would be a good idea to have a national church that when people came to Washington, D.C. for government service from wherever they came in the country, they would have a place. And so what was then Metropolitan Memorial United Methodist Church was the only Methodist congregation in the United States that was started by an act of general conference instead of by an act of annual conference. Oh, really? Yeah. The general conference thought it would be important that there be a church that people from all over the country could go to when they came to D.C. Because, of course, back in the day, in that time, the idea that there would be people living permanently in D.C., wasn't something that that people really thought very much about, although there were people living permanently in D.C. then. The original church was down closer to um, closer to Union Station, okay. kind of like the foot of Capitol Hill. Apparently, there were some structural problems with the building that involved like the steeple getting ready to fall on the neighboring buildings. I'm not quite sure of those details. Nice. But that building had to be vacated, and they were they decided to move the church out into what at the time were the the far edgy suburbs. So upper Northwest DC, at the time that they moved the church, which was like at the turn of the, after the civil war, was just being built out. And 
that the hilltop, which you know because you've been there, where American University is, that was all sort of seen as Methodist territory. It was going to be the Methodist Hill because mm-hmm. American University is started as a Methodist institution, mm-hmm. right. chartered, chartered as a Methodist institution. And so the reason that the Metropolitan Memorial Building was situated across the street from American University was this sort of product, part of a broader effort to have a real strong Methodist presence up in that corner of the city. If you've been in, if you've seen the building, the, the Metropolitan Memorial Building that we're in right now, they started building it. The story that I've heard is they started building it in the 20s, but um, the building process had to be suspended during the Depression. So if you're inside the building, you can actually see a change in the color of the stonework because they built only like half of it and then they had to stop. There was the depression, there was the war, and then they resumed building. So the building that we see today wasn't finished until the 50s. And then they built out this huge education wing and then it was added to on later. So it was called Metropolitan Memorial with sort of a subtitle of the National Church. They also called it the Church of the Strangers. Oh. Yeah, so when we were thinking about new names, Stranger Church came up, but we decided not to go with that one ultimately. I, I still think it would have been a better choice, Stranger Church. But we it had been called the National Church for a long time. But the reason that we changed the name from Metropolitan Memorial to National Church is that the current church is actually a result of several mergers. Mm-hmm. So if, you, if you're in the D.C. area up in Tenleytown, there used to be a congregation called Eldbrook, and that was merged in in the early 2000s. And that was just a merger. They they sold the building to another church and the people came over to Metropolitan Memorial. There was a church in Glover Park called St. Luke's that wasn't able to sustain itself as an independent church. So it was merged. Um, we kept that building and used that building as the center. It's our mission center. So that is the the hub for our commercial kitchen that sends food out into the city. Um, We are currently, I think, sending out like 5,000 meals a month. Wow. Wow. And it's reclaimed food. So it's food from grocery stores and farmer's market, uh, farmer's markets. Mom's Organic Market is a big contributor. Um, Food that would be thrown in the dumpster is being claimed and then turned into meals and then sent out around the city to different partner churches and community organizations. So that's happening out of the St. Luke's Mission Center. That building also has um, a hostel for uh, groups that are coming into town to do mission service projects. Like right now we have the interns for Project Transformation living there. And it also houses the offices for Friendship Place, which does um, services for unhoused people. So that congregation, the St. Luke's congregation, merged with Metropolitan Memorial. And then in the around 2010-ish, Metropolitan Memorial and Wesley United Methodist on Connecticut Avenue were yoked together as a cooperative parish. And then that eventually became a merger as well. So we had what we had were all of these different merged congregations, and we were still using the name Metropolitan Memorial. When I was hired in 2014, the actual name of the church was the Metropolitan Church, colon, a multi-site church comprised of Metropolitan Memorial, 
St. Luke's Mission Center, and Wesley United Methodist Churches. That's difficult to use. And so um, in true Methodist form, a task force was developed to reconsider the name. And um, after going back into the church history and sort of reclaiming that sense of why the church was started in the first place, and the fact that that if you go back into like the old bulletins from the 50s and stuff, it does actually have like the subtitle, the National Church. They just decided to go with National United Methodist. So it's it's one of those situations where we needed a new name because we couldn't use any of the previous names because anything that we used was going to exclude the people that had joined as part of the merger. So that's a very long version of why it's called National instead of Metropolitan Memorial. Can I pause you there? Yeah. So I have two questions. My first question is my, the rumor that I heard when I was in seminary is that a rich person had died and left half of his money to the National Presbyterian Church and half his money to the National Methodist Church. And that's why National changed their name to get his money. No. Why, dispel that rumor for me. <laughs> um, I, the, I believe that they had the money before they changed the name. Perfect. Okay. So that's that problem yeah. solved. Yeah, um, I mean, yeah. That's not why they changed the name to National. That there, a version of that story is true, and I don't know the exact details. Other than that, um, there was a person who gave money to left his money to National, the National Methodist Church, and um, and National Presbyterian said, "Oh, that's us because we're National Presbyterian on Nebraska Avenue. There's no other National on Nebraska Avenue." But then um, it, it was the national church and probably the man remembered coming in the 50s or 60s when that sort of subtitle would have been in the bulletins, Metropolitan Memorial Church, the National Methodist Church. But at any rate, yeah, that, that money, I believe that money was there before we changed the name. Okay. And yes, there's a huge, there's a very large endowment and um, one of the ongoing questions there is what's the faithful way to spend the endowment mm. it is a topic of a lot of discussion mm-hmm. yeah oh I can I can only imagine <laughs> given the um the endowment that I had to deal with with my small church mm-hmm. and how to spend that money I can mm-hmm. only imagine nationals I'm not going to say the figure but they're they're substantial sum so my second question was why do you as in your role know all of this history were you just curious or is this something that like you need to know as a part of your job so this is i i need to know as part of my job for a couple of reasons um one is that as even though i'm a deacon i'm clergy on staff and so i have a somewhat pastoral role which means that i need to know where people are coming from and sort of what their background is So it's important to understand the histories of the mergers and the feelings Mm -hmm. and the the personal histories that came with those mergers. Because when I'm relating to someone from who who grew up in the Eldbrook congregation and is now worshiping at Metropolitan Memorial, there's there's things I need to know about that. Um, But also in my education role, I do a lot of teaching of what does it mean to be a United Methodist? Uh, who are we? Uh, what, what, when you join National United Methodist Church, what are you joining? You know, there's always that little component of church history. And then people want to know what, 
what this congregation is. And for new people coming in, the idea of having three different campuses is confusing because it's not normal. Right. And so part of what I do to equip people to participate in the life of the church is help them understand how everything fits together. So that's how I, why I know that. Yeah. (laughs) I'm so glad because I was, I was going to ask about kind of the feelings of each of those mergers, but like, as, as per usual, Janet has thought of all of those kind of specific things. That's what I always found uh, when I was attending Metropolitan at the time, uh, is that like your sermons were always the ones that hit me the strongest. Your children's messages were like always on point, but also every conversation I had with you, it's like, oh, I didn't even think of that as a problem, but like you have anticipated. And I, I adore that about you just to brag on you for a minute. (laughs) (laughs) That's very kind. Um, some, some of that is learned the hard way by, by not knowing it. Yeah. 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 So I, we well, kind of talked about this is, are the people at national by and large um, people whose income reflect the wealth of the neighborhood around them? Or is it more varied? It's more varied than you probably think. Um, okay. Yeah. And, and it's definitely more varied than I thought when I came on staff. Hmm. Because I coming into the situation in so i was i came on staff in february of 2014 and i had been in the baltimore washington conference for years at that point and i you know knew the reputation of metropolitan memorial as a wealthy white um upper northwest suburban congregation and to some extent it is but because there's a couple reasons. So there's a lot more diversity within the Metropolitan Memorial Congregation than you would see on its face. So for instance, we have um, a fair number of people who came to DC for government service Mm -hmm. and who worked as like administrative assistants. These are not cabinet members. They're people that that worked sort of mid-level government jobs and retired and are now living on a pension trying to pay rent or a mortgage in Upper Northwest DC. Mm. So it's not it's not like they're rolling in money. Uh, we have people that have worked their spent their whole career as nannies mm. and have lived in that neighborhood for a long time because they nannied for, for families, but um, they're not wealthy by any stretch of the imagination. And then we also have a fair number of people with the mergers, the congregation that's located on Connecticut Avenue. So it's it's in the Chevy Chase part of Chevy Chase, DC. So it's south of, of the circle. Um, but we have, that congregation is much more diverse um, racially and culturally. There's a lot of immigrant families in that mm-hmm. congregation. And there's a lot of people who attend that congregation because it's walking distance, either from the apartment buildings that they live in or from uh, some of the subsidized senior citizen housing that's along that stretch of Connecticut Avenue. So there's a lot of diversity in income levels in that congregation to the point where we have to be really conscious about um, making sure that that there's food available after church on Sundays because people will take meals home because they actually need it, not just because it's a nice thing to do. So it's, it's more diverse. There's a lot of hidden poverty 
in Upper Northwest, some of which actually ends up in a congregation like Metropolitan Memorial even. Hmm. Yeah, I, I, I don't love that it exists, but I like naming it as hidden poverty. There was a lot of, um, when I was serving, there was a lot of hidden homelessness, people who did not mm-hmm. have a permanent address, but were couch surfing. So they're not on the streets because there's not really a street out in rural places, but they don't have a home and yeah. um, they don't have an income. And so trying to see, I think churches can be when they're, when they're doing their best, can be places that see those kind of hidden people that get missed by the system. We've had a couple of church members that were living in their cars wow. and at, at different times. And so the ability to use the church parking lot and to be able to get got to be an issue, you know, so sure. yeah, it's there. It's there. So Janet, sure. sometimes sometimes we say on this podcast, Janet, that um, the church building is for some people the only property that they own. Mm-hmm. Um, just by being a part of a congregation, they now have access to you know, resources that maybe even prior to that, they just wouldn't be able to access. And that's always helpful for us as young clergy who encounter building idol worship, you know, mm-hmm. in our congregations, because it, it's a good corrective to, to help to remind us that, yeah, it's not that building idol worship is, isn't, isn't there and, and it should be, it should be addressed. But at the same time, the building really does have a powerful you know, the building and the property and those resources really do have a powerful role to play Mm -hmm. in like making lives better, you know, and in serving others. So that's really cool. Yeah, it is really cool. I mean, we have, we have families in the congregation whose, whose children um, are really involved in music, but they live in these small little apartment buildings where there's no room for a piano. Mm -hmm. So they come and use the piano at the church. And that becomes something that's really important to those children as they're growing up. Things like that. Yeah. 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 Um, sorry. I was just thinking we, when I was interning at Salem, we were trying to figure out what to do with their education wing because they weren't mm-hmm. having Sunday school classes in there. Um, and Reverend Sue really wanted to take that and turn it into office space or maybe spaces that like music teachers could rent. And we always ran up against like, well, how do we ensure like if something happens in the space, how do we take care of that? And it's um, for a small church, those legal hurdles are almost insurmountable because you can't pay for a lawyer to help you figure it out or you can't pay for the insurance or, or whichever. But the nice thing about having a church with an endowment in D.C. Um, is that, like, you can get advice on that and you can figure out how to do that and then make your space both safe and accessible. Um, yeah. I think I think a lot of times people are, people will say, well, why doesn't the church just do this? Why don't we just do this? And it's that, well, we could be really ruined if we did it wrong. And so it's it's balancing that. Yeah. It's, and so that's something you don't think of. It's kind of a behind the scenes thing. Yeah, I mean, this is this is constantly because because we do have a lot of real estate. There's a lot of groups that want to use the church building. And one of the issues that we're always having to look at is safe sanctuaries, mm-hmm. because if anybody under 18 is involved, all of a sudden we really, really have to have people abiding by safe sanctuaries rules. And it's fascinating to me how many groups will fight that. Yeah. Like, are you out of your minds? This is this. It. It's so destructive to the people involved and it's financially ruinous to the organizations involved. So why would you even allow the possibility that something bad could happen? But um, yeah, it is very difficult and you have to be vigilant. Yeah. 
whether it's a small church or a large church. Yep. Yeah. 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 Even with, uh, we talked God, months ago about the Boy Scouts um, oh. and like, that's, that's such a big national scandal that why wouldn't, why wouldn't every single organization that works with children want to have prepared to, to deal with the possibility of that happening? And yeah, yeah. It's a, we, I could talk about safe sanctuaries all day and we might need to on one episode so I can get it out of my system. The big part of what I have to do is make sure that we're safe sanctuaries compliant. Do you go to trainings for that? How, like, how do you make sure that you are in the know? So we have, uh, we have a safe sanctuaries policy that the church adopted several years ago. That's been updated from time to time. We just added a safe sanctuaries in an electronic environment part to it during the pandemic when everything was going online. And then we've done training videos that are actually used by other churches a lot, just because there's not a lot of stuff online that's available free. And so um, people use ours a lot. Um, The main thing for me is making sure that the adults that are working with children and youth are consistently updating their background checks and, Mm -hmm. and checking in on the new parts of the training. Um, It's, a lot of it is, it's not rocket science. It's have two adults in the room, right? Who aren't related or married. Who aren't related. Yeah. It's not, it's not rocket science, but it's surprising how often people just don't seem to think about it. Yeah. Safe sanctuaries is the easiest thing in the world to be compliant on. It's just that people are, I don't know. I guess they don't want to face the facts that it could happen to them. And I think that's really the thing. It's it's that it's too much. It's too much to consider as a possibility. Or they feel like they're being accused of being somebody who might want to do that when you ask them to do a background check. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I think where I've run into resistance is not actually when I ask people to do background checks. Actually, it's really funny in D.C. because so many people have to have really deep background checks for their jobs. Right. Like, well, I can hand you my CIA level 45, you know, clearance, whatever. It's like, I, actually, we need to do our church background check, which is nowhere near as deep as you just had, but we have to do our own. Um, so it's not so much that, that people resist the background checks. It's more the sort of general idea within the church that, well, we're, we're all one family and we all know each other. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in some ways, this is actually more difficult in small churches. Absolutely. Because small churches tend to think more in terms of we're all one big family. But, you know, most child abuse actually happens within families. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. And so having to gently remind people of that horrible fact is it's not pleasant, but it's part of what we have to do. Yeah. Yeah. I am. Um... I went through a training called Darkness to Light back when I worked at the planetarium in Chapel Hill probably 10 years ago now. And it was the it was the first training that I went to that was like these are the signs that you should be looking for. This is how you keep children safe. Like this is what to be aware of. Um, and and church people hate thinking about that. I find they they want to imagine that their their space is really safe. But boy, do I love being the person who's like, let me just wreck your day for a minute because we have to acknowledge this. Like this is how we keep each other safe. Um, I just like Ian wants to close churches. I want to wreck church people's minds <laughs> when it comes to this. It's the the joy I get. I'll I will for our listeners who I. Uh, who are coming to this, I am certain that I'm going to put a note on that in that conversation in the show notes. So you're prepared for that because we, we did just kind of stumble into that territory. Oh, sorry. 
No, 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 no. I think it's great. And it's part of the job. Um, but it is, it's also, you know, hard. The world is a hard place. Um, so, so you know about small churches because you were a deacon at Salem before you went to Metropolitan and that's the, the transition. How long, let me, let me ask you about your ministry journey. How long have you been at national? How long were you at Salem before that? When did becoming a deacon become a part of your, your life? Tell me all these things. Okay. Back when dinosaurs walked the earth and I was in (laughs) high school, um, I first felt, felt a call to ministry when I was in high school. But at the time, I was Presbyterian. And while the Presbyterian Church was ordaining women, I didn't know any female clergy. I knew theoretically they existed. In fact, I think the moderator of the Presbyterian Church at that time was female. But I had never met any, and I didn't know what to do with this call to ministry. So I didn't do anything with it. I went into working on international development issues. I went to Africa, spent a lot of time working on um, poverty, international development. I was an anti-apartheid lobbyist. I did all these things. But pause. Pause. How did you get to do all that? (laughs) Like, I did not know this about you at all. (laughs) All right. So, I, uh, so my undergraduate degree is a double major in German and political science. And then I had a travel fellowship the year I finished. Um, I went to the University of Puget Sound in Tacoma, had a travel fellowship where they just handed me a pile of money and said, go travel and send us letters. And so I spent a year traveling around Africa and that was wonderful and, and very eye opening. So I started in Kenya and just kind of worked my way down the eastern side of Africa to South Africa and then worked my way up the West Coast and ended in Senegal with many adventures in between. And then I came to DC to the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies and did a master's degree in African Studies and International Relations. Wow. So I thought you knew that. Okay, anyway. I knew none of this. (laughs) So... So I, my first job at a graduate school was at the Washington office on Africa, which is in the, in the United Methodist building. Hmm. And at the time we, it was, it was, uh, there was still apartheid in South Africa. And so we were do, we were primarily working on anti-apartheid legislation. So sort of, um, supporting sanctions, but we were also working on, um, there, there were active wars in Angola and Mozambique at the time that the South African government was interfering in. And there was a lot of pressure coming out of the Reagan administration. There was a lot of desire to support the right wings of those fights. And so the Washington Office on Africa was trying to support actual liberation and freedom instead of um, new dictatorships. And so I worked on that for a while, and then I went to World Development, which is an international development studies journal, and it's an interdisciplinary journal where academics from a variety of different fields are publishing their research on the best ways for for countries to lift their population out of poverty, to work on women's rights, a, a whole variety of things. So I was there for 14 years, I think. Um, And 
did Af did Africa stuff, but did parts of other other parts of the world. Traveled a lot. Went to a lot of conferences. Uh, went to Kenya to work with the Institute of Development Studies there, helping Kenyan scholars learn how to get published in international journals, which is one of the big obstacles for scholars in developing countries is that they're doing really good research, but getting published is hard. And there's a lot, it's, it's like being first generation college student. If no one in your family has ever applied for college, you don't know how to do it. And if no one in your life has ever been published in an international journal, it's hard to know what to do. And so right. there was, we did some training around that. Um, so that, that's what I was doing. Um, but in the meantime, so that was my, that was my work life. I was working with all these international development scholars. But in the meantime, my husband and I had moved to Rockville. We had children and we had moved up to Rockville United Methodist Church because it was close to our home and we had little kids. And that was a church that had, in its entire history, never had children in the sanctuary. And they had gone, never, yeah, they, they had gone through a strategic planning process, as you do when you're Methodist. And they had realized that if they ever wanted to survive, they would have to start having children come into the sanctuary because otherwise, as soon as they're confirmed, they disappear. They never come back. Mm -hmm. Well, if you're going to have children in the sanctuary, you need to have something for the children. And so you need to have a children's message. And so the pastor at the time, Vince Liburd, if you know him, says to me, Janet, I think you need to be doing the children's messages. And I said, Vince, I work with PhD economists all day long. I have no idea how to do a children's message. <laughs> but he said, but you have a two-year-old. You can do this. And so I started giving children's messages. And it very rapidly became the best five minutes of my week. Mm. And so I did more of that. And then... I did more Sunday school things. And then I was Sunday school superintendent and I was running vacation Bible school and I was teaching adult classes and everything that I did, it felt right, but it never felt like it was all of it. Mm -hmm. And so long story short, when our youngest son went to school full time as a first grader, I quit my job and went to seminary. And when I got on the Wesley campus that first day of the first semester, it was the first time I really felt like, oh, yeah, this is wow. what, this is where we were headed. This is the right thing to do. Hmm. So that's the story of how I got to uh, seminary. And then why I became a deacon, um, one of the questions that I was asked by my clergy mentor when I was going through the Methodist process, and it's one that I still use with people as I'm mentoring them, is when you're trying to decide whether you're a deacon or an elder, the question is a question of call. Like mm -hmm. what, what is at the center of your call? Hmm. There's couple, two, two ways to discern that. The, um, one is, what is the one thing that if you could never do it again, you would not be faithful to the call that God has put on your life. Ooh. The one thing. And for a lot of elders, that one thing is sacrament. Like mm. They would go to that immediately. Hmm. 
my one thing was children's messages, huh, right? Wow. Yeah. I could give up preaching. I could give up sacrament. If I could never give another children's message, I wouldn't be doing what God had called me to do. The ministry of the deacon in the United Methodist Church is a specialized ministry. So we, are, we focus in an area. And because we don't itinerate, we are able to focus in a specific area. An elder could be appointed to my job. An elder could do my job. But there's always the possibility that they would be yanked out of it and sent to order the life of a, of a whole church, you know, and have to do the trustees meetings and and the beautiful things too, right? The sacrament. And some elders really feel like if they could never do another trustees meeting, they wouldn't be living out their call. I actually know people like that. Um, but it's a question of call. So becoming a deacon or an elder is a question of call. And um, there's a lot of things that overlap. I actually have sacramental authority um, within my settings, so I can do sacrament. I do. Um, but if I couldn't, it would be okay. Mm -hmm. I'd miss it, but it would be okay. And that's really the central question is like, what, what is it that is, is, what is it that is really, really necessary? The other question, the other question that my mentor had asked me, and it, again, it gets to this whole question of sacrament. Deacons can be given sacramental authority by bishops. And our current bishop is very deacon friendly. That's um, Bishop Luttrell Easterling. She's very deacon friendly. She's really wonderful. Um, and so she has been very gracious about granting sacramental authority to deacons who ask for it. And she said that from the beginning. She said, you know, we, we have a process, so I'm going to need a letter from you. But if you believe you need it, I'm not going to argue with you. You know your setting. Um, but it really varies from bishop to bishop. And there are some bishops that don't give sacramental authority, even in situations where you really it's really needed. And so we can't assume that we get it, that we would have sacramental authority. And so given that, deacons are ordained to word, service, love, and justice, compassion and justice, okay? So the word and the service isn't going to go away. The justice work isn't going to go away, but sacrament could go away because it's not, that's not what we're ordained to. So the other question is, as we're assisting with communion, because there's always a, there's a role for the deacon to assist in, in communion, but not actually, um, not actually do the, the blessing. The, the question my mentor said was, when you touch the bread, ask yourself, if I could never touch this again, if I could never break this again, would it be okay? Hmm. That's good. And yeah. the, answer, the answer for me was yes. Wow. And I know, I know people that when I ask them that question, they start to cry. I, I'm so upset because I'm tearing up. <laughs> yeah. Right? Because that's that's the call of an elder. Like if you're really called the sacrament, the idea of never being able to do that again is heartbreaking. Hmm. And that's how I feel when I think about sitting down with kids and talking to them about God, mm, mm -hmm. you know, because that's, that's the core of my call right there. And different deacons have different calls. You know, we're, we're spread all over in all kinds of different areas. And so it's different for each one of us. What, what's at the, 
the center of our ministries. But Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Ethan, do you have something you want to jump in with as, as you listened and reflected? I just think that's a really uh, important and really beautiful question. That's all, you know, calling. I'm Janet. I'm so suspicious and jaded of calling um, and the language of calling. And so Mm -hmm. is Joe. You know, I don't, I didn't want to speak for Joe. And a lot of that on the podcast, we have a history of talking about trying to deconstruct calling, you know, and, and try to try to see the ways in which it's abused, you know, in, in our lives and in our contexts. You know, one of the things that I've experienced pretty directly is in my in my initial context i'm from pennsylvania i'm from the susquehanna annual conference Mm -hmm. and one of the things that when i was a full-time pastor before coming to virginia that i experienced a lot was a, a kind of a spiritualization of call and call language uh towards the end of keeping young pastors in line right like you know, that was something that we, and I think Joe has experienced that as well. That's just something that I experienced really firsthand. Like, why are you asking for a, an appointment with better, in a better location with, with, you know, for your family? You're called by God to submit to the authority of the bishop. And, and that calling, uh, you can do anywhere, right? You should be happy being in Mudlick, Kentucky, you know, or whatever you're in. <laughs> You know, meaning no disrespect to Mudlick, Kentucky. That's a real town in Kentucky. I've been there, by the way. That's why I bring it up. Um, <laughs> meaning no disrespect. The, the the Appalachian folks there are lovely. But like, you know, it, it's just it's just the way in which it's been employed, right? Like mm-hmm. be be happy with thirty nine thousand dollars a year, even though inflation is going up because you're called to do this or whatever. And so I've become suspicious of that. But I find that I find your the what your mentor said to you to be a very um, I'm going to say non-authoritarian view of call right like it's a very it's a very simple question that is really you know designed to get us to really reflect and to really think you know and it's not designed to control mm-hmm. right it's not designed to make us think that we are members of a supergroup. And then because we're a member of that supergroup, we should accept whatever garbage comes our way because this is just the call, right? right. I liked, I, I just want to affirm that, that I think that that question really speaks to me yeah. um, in an important way. So thank you for that. Well, thank you for bringing up the whole issues of all the ways that this gets abused. <laughs> because that's, so one of the interesting things about being a deacon in the United Methodist Church is and you're aware of this as being young clergy, you're aware of this. Um, there's a lot of inequality built into our system. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And one of the trade-offs that deacons, okay, on paper, deacons and elders are equal and complementary ministries. That's the theory. In reality, we are paid less than elders. We have less, we have way less job security than elders. We don't have a guaranteed appointment. We can be unemployed. And it is also true, although it's changing, that when the Order of Deacons was started in 1996, the vast majority of deacons were women. Mm-hmm. And so the pay gap was even worse because we were already, there was already a pay gap because women were clergy were being paid less 
But then you took all these deacons who had been diaconal ministers and ordained them. And they're, uh, yeah, it's always been a problem. Mm. And we, we hear the same kind of thing. You know, you're called to this ministry. So it's, it's discouraging sometimes. And that's, and that's why I, I like to focus more on, because I don't think call comes from the church. I think call can be affirmed by the church. Mm. But I think call comes from God. And that's where you get that sense of what's, what's necessary, what's central here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I, I feel very foolish not, not having put together that with the exception of one person, every single deacon I have met has been a woman or at least mm-hmm. a non-man. You know, mm-hmm. like, like I could, there's one deacon in my life who was a man. Yeah. And, and I met him years and years ago. And, but, but you're right. Like that is, you know, I, I had not put that together, but that's completely true. The, the three deacons or the three folks who I went to seminary with, who I knew who were on the deacon track, all three of them are women. Mm-hmm. The, the handful of other folks in my life who I've met, who have been deacons, all of them are women. I don't, it's, I shouldn't say it's surprising. I, or I guess it, in a sense, it is surprising because the, the deacon track is a lovely track. I mean, it, it's a defined, like you just said, what the deacon is called to. And that's, that calling is not u- a uniquely feminine call, you know, whatever right. the hell that means. Right. right? right. Like, like it's, it's, it's an open call for any and all people and who would feel that calling. And that's, that's fascinating. That's fascinating. Yeah. I will say as the order of deacons has gotten, so in the beginning, it was very, very female. Um, in recent years, we've seen, well, first of all, we've seen more young clergy going into the order of deacons than into the order of elders. I mean, it, the numbers are shifting. There's still more becoming elders, but the numbers are shifting dramatically. So it's getting closer. Um, and in some conferences, there, there'll be years where there's actually more deacons. Um, and and as younger clergy are coming in, more men are coming in. Hmm. But the original, when we went from having diaconal, unordained diaconal ministers to ordained deacons in 1996, diaconal ministers were a lot of Christian educators and uh, pastoral counselors and music ministers. And a lot of those were women. And so there's some historic reasons for, for why we are so female. Yeah. Um, whew, boy, I want to, I, I'm glad that Ethan, Ethan took the wheel for a minute. Cause I was like, let me just talk about my feelings right now. <laughs> um, but we don't need to, cause I, I have so many more questions. So what does being ordained as a deacon mean rather than being a lay diaconal minister to you? Like what is, what is the, the special thing that ordination does that you couldn't just do as a lay person in your mind? Yeah, that's a good question. And it's a question that um, it's a question that deacons actually get asked a lot and um, elders don't, which is a problem, which is a problem. I was on the board of ordained ministry for eight years. And that was one of the things that we actually had to work on was if you're going to ask that question of any candidate, you need to ask it of every candidate. Why do you need to be ordained to do what you're going to do? Um, so there's a couple things in my role. Um, there's, there's this idea of set apart ministry where I am focusing 
um, my time and my energies on making sure that I am equipped to equip people. Um, a layperson who is working in another job doesn't devote the same amount of energy to it because it's not their full-time gig. Like this is my full-time gig. Um, part of it is also needing, not needing. It is useful to have the um, endorsement of the church behind you mm. right. to be able to enter into a space with reverend in front of your name that that opens doors for ministry that are otherwise closed mm -hmm. so for instance i have been able to um to go into american university and and speak on interfaith panels about different issues about women about um we actually did a whole interfaith panel on Jesus, which was fascinating. Hmm. Um, yeah, because you would, it was like, what do Jews think about Jesus? What do Muslims think about Jesus? What do Christians think about Jesus? And you have 15 minutes to do it. <laughs> <laughs> it was awesome. Um, but, you know, being able to go into those kind of spaces, it's, uh, it's important to have sort of the authority of the church behind you so that it's not just some random person talking. I don't think that ordination makes us better or different than lay people. It is, um, it's just the way that we order the church for ministry. It's the way that we help people think about how we're, how we are ordering the church. And in the current structure of the United Methodist Church, we have deacons and elders and licensed local pastors and laity. And that's how we order it. I, that could change. It's going to change. The global Methodist church is going to not have deacons the way that the United Methodist church has. So I'm shocked. I'm shocked. I'm shocked, shocked, right? Right. Just uh, let's give it two general conferences and then the global Methodist church aren't going to have women pastors either. So, Ooh. you know, it, it's, one of it's one of those things all we have to they're just we're just waiting for the voting to come yeah, down through so. we'll see about that <laughs> that's why i'm joining the global methodist Church. <laughs> I, did, I didn't know how to tell you both but i'm joining they've actually made me bishop uh they've offered it to me and i said of course um that's some good Methodist-only stand-up right there. That's right. As I, that's right. So Janet, I've been thinking about it. As you said, what could I, what would happen, part of my calling means what would break my heart if I had to live without it? And I realized that the answer is power. Yeah. My heart would break if I didn't have power. And so that's why I joined the Global Methodist Church. Yeah, there you I'm go. I'm, of course, kidding. <laughs> I'm, of course, kidding. I'm not. I'm not a mom. I've been, I don't think God has called me to be powerful. That was to be a little strange, but Correct. I don't See, mean to interrupt you. That, but that's a, that's a, so historically that's been where one of the downfalls of clergy though, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. Because there are some people that is actually the core of the center of their call is power. Mm -hmm. And when that happens and it, and it may not start out that way, right? But when that happens is when we end up um, with situations with unhealthy, toxic churches and people that get burned out from ministry, because that's not, God doesn't call us to that. That was not what Christ models. I mean, that there's got nothing to do with our faith that says right, I need right. to be in charge or I need to be powerful. Yeah. Yeah. 
Oh, gosh. Yeah, and that this whole conversation has really uh, made me think again about how... Um, how immature I was in my, um, in my, in my first parishes that I served as a, as a licensed local pastor. And, and probably a lot of what Reverend Sue at Salem was trying to grow in me. (laughs) She was trying to mentor me because I, um, I definitely want to be the person who's running the administrative council meeting because I know how to do it efficiently. I know how to vision for the church. I know how to get it done. And I, I have a, I have a deep passion for what I believe is right and the direction we should go. And um, you can't force people to go a direction they do not want to go, no matter how right you are convinced of, of its rightness. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, there is, there is a real, um, and I don't think we are effective despite, you know, all of the hoops we go through in the ordination process. The ordination process is not effective at weeding out those who really just want power in, in their roles. In fact, they're more likely to be like, Hey, it sounds like you want to order the church. Go be a, go be an elder. You know, we, uh, we funnel them to the positions where they can do the most harm. And that's, um, boy. Okay. Sorry. Let me that taking that rant back. I mean, I'm going to leave it. It's not really a rant. It's just speaking the truth. But, oh, okay. Um, this is, we're at the hour point, but Janet, you're able to stick around for another half hour yeah, at least. I yeah. yeah, I can stick around if you want me to. Yeah, so we're going to stick around for a mini-sode and just continue this conversation. But Ethan, will you sign us off for this main episode? I can. Friends, thanks for listening. This has been an episode of What the Hell is a Pastor? We are Ethan and Joe and Janet. And we will see you next time. What the Hell is a Pastor is a part of the Disruptive Disciples Podcast Network. Our theme song is written by Joe Schomolf, performed by Joe Schomolf, Ian Uriola, and Paul Uriola, and produced by Paul Uriola. Email us at wtheckisapastor at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash disruptivedisciples, on Twitter at WTHIAP, and on Patreon at patreon.com slash WTHIAP, where you can get access to pillow talk, merch, signed cards, custom essays, and so much more. Thanks for listening, and respect your deacons, friends. <laughs>